Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be with you again. The last time, as Jeb mentioned, was February. And at that time, we studied out of Second Peter 3, uh, and we talked about being careful about not stopping the story too soon. And it's one of the things I love about being a Christian is that with God, there's always more. You never come to the end. God's not done. He's not done with me. He's not done with you. He's not done with this body of Christ here. He's not done with what He's doing in the world. It's one of the great things because it means there's always anticipation. And it's one of the reasons I enjoy coming back here periodically is because I like to see what God's doing here in your midst and what the next steps are that He's calling you to. Uh, As Jeb mentioned, Grant and I are are very good friends, have been good friends for a lot of years. I have a great deal of respect uh, and admiration for Grant. I trust you do as well. Uh, He is a a man of God, a man of God's Word. Um, Not to put him on a pedestal, he's human like the rest of us. Uh, But he is a uh, strong pastor, shepherd, and I trust that you value and, and appreciate him. Uh, This morning, we're going to study from 1 Peter chapter 2, and the title that I've given to our study is Jesus, the Rock of Offense, or the Rock of Our Salvation. And in Scripture, it's a pretty common title, Rock of Salvation, that is uh, attributed to Jesus throughout a number of passages, Old and New Testament. But interesting, the passage we're going to study this morning... 1 Peter chapter 2, he is referred to as a stumbling block or a rock of offense. And that's not such a common title for Jesus. And as, as contradictory as these two terms seem, we're going to see that he's actually both. And the more relevant question, the more accurate question is, Who is Jesus to you? Is he the rock of your salvation? Or is he a rock of offense? I want to read uh, the verses that we're going to study this morning in their entirety and then pray and then we will walk through this section. So it's 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Peter writes, And coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Pray with me.
Father God, we come humbly into your presence this morning and we call upon your name. Our greatest need as always is to hear from you. I pray that you would be pleased to use my word as I speak of your word and that the power of your Holy Spirit would take your word and that you would touch each heart here exactly in the way you know they have need. And we ask these things that uh, that your holy name and your son Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified and that we would be drawn closer in our relationship to you. It's in Jesus' name that we come before you. Amen. It's interesting in verse 4, there are the first few words that it would be very easy to pass right by and not recognize the significance of them. It's the words, and coming to Him. Because in reality, that's where it all starts. Now, we acknowledge that that no one can come to the Father except that Jesus draws them and that that God thankfully is an initiator with us and none of us would have been found because we weren't seeking Him. And so He initiated, He reached out to us. But the response on our part is to come to Him. That's where it all begins. And coming to Jesus is the way that we begin our experience with Him. And we see this through a number of places uh, where Jesus speaks in the Gospels, one of them, for example, Matthew 11, 28 and 29, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're here this morning and you have a weary soul, come to him. The context of these verses is primarily to those who are not believers. But the principle applies to us that know Him as well, right? Because sometimes even those of us that know Him, we can sort of find ourselves moving into a distance or a separation from Him. And and even if that's the case, there's an application for us who know Him that, hey, if there is a sense that your soul is weary, He says, come to Me. I will refresh your soul. John chapter 6, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. If you're here this morning and you've got an appetite that you can't satisfy, you can't fulfill, come to him. He satisfies. Or John 7, 37, 38, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures say, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. If you're here this morning and you feel a bit thirsty, Jesus says, come to me. I will quench the thirst. And knowing and experiencing God begins when a person makes that step to come to Jesus. But you have to be thirsty. You have to be hungry. You have to come to Him. Now, Peter goes on and, and gives a, a, a very interesting word picture of Jesus. It's not one that's that common, but in verse 4, he uses this picture of a living stone. And those are two words that we typically don't put together 
stone and living. In other places in the scripture, Jesus is given the title of anchor, fortress, refuge, shield, rock. Here it's stone. And all of these descriptions are attempts to depict the strength and the power that is in Jesus. That Jesus is the immovable, the unchanging Son of God. And that all who come to Him find a place of security, find a place of safety, find a place of rest. He is the rock. And He can be depended on. When Peter then adds this adjective living, he is conveying to the believers in his day and to us in our day that Jesus is not dead. Yeah, he came to the earth, lived his life, was put through a trial, was tortured, and ultimately was put to death, hanging on a cross, and then was placed into a tomb, and the tomb was sealed. But the tomb couldn't hold him. He conquered death. In fact, it is his resurrection that God said declares to the world that he is the Son of God. So this word picture that Peter is painting, this living stone, the living adjective part of it is that he's living, he's alive. And that he's the life giver. He is the one who gives life, both abundant life and eternal life, to all who will come to Him. And we enjoy that truth. We enjoy the security of that living stone. Then there's a couple of other words in verse 4 used to describe Jesus. Choice and precious. Choice in that He was chosen by God. He was ordained by God. For this very purpose of dying on a cross as a substitution so that he could offer eternal life to the entire human race. And of Jesus, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The word precious as the idea of something that's very costly, something that's highly prized, something that's highly esteemed, something that's greatly loved, something that has no equal. So this living stone is precious in choice in the sight of God. And you know what? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. This is God's opinion. This is God's declared testimony about His Son. That in God's sight, He is choice and He is precious. Now we understand that not everyone sees Jesus that way. Not everyone comes to the living stone. There are those who do not acknowledge Him as choice and precious. They reject Him. They do not recognize who He is. Not all uncommon, is it, that man and God disagree on the value of most things? 
And it certainly is the case when we come to Jesus. And so there's no surprise. Uh, Remember what uh, Peter wrote to the believers in Corinth? When he said, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. Of course it is. They're on the outside looking in. And because they have not tasted the kindness of the Lord, of course it's foolishness to them. What are you guys talking about? And then the rest of the verse. But to those of us who are being saved, that Jesus, that message of salvation, is the power of God. And we're tasting that. We experience that. But the power of God is evident in our lives. Now, he continues on with this living stone, and now in verse 5, he says, Those who come to him, your living stones. And you're being fitted together into this spiritual house that God, the master builder, is constructing, and we know it as the church, the body of Christ, the family of God. And one by one, God, as, as those who come to Him and come to faith, He is placing us in this building for spiritual sacrifices. This is significant because Peter is revealing that there is a progression here from the Old Testament into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place that represented where God resided. It was a physical structure. It was a tabernacle. It was a temple. It was a building. It was a place, a physical place. Jesus comes, ushers in a new era where believers are now being built, you and I, into a spiritual house, and we become the temple of God. We are the place where God now resides. Building's nice. This building is not the church. We are the church. A progression from the Old and New Testament. And that one by one we're being assembled into the body of Christ. One by one we're being assembled into the family of God. And that's why we are instructed to love each other, to support each other, to encourage each other, to forgive each other, to be patient with each other, to bear one another's burdens. Because we're one family. God's building it together. And then in verse 5, he says, and, and part of the purpose of this is that you who believe are to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. Again, another indication that there's been a progression from the Old to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, offering of sacrifices were done with goats and sheep, and they were slaughtered for an act of forgiveness of sin. And then Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And he goes to the cross, and now he's referred to as the Lamb of God. He is the last sacrifice needed for sin. He died once for all. The just for the unjust. In order that he might bring us to God. Thank God animal sacrifices are no longer required. And so when we come to verse 5 here in this idea that, okay, we're called to, uh, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. These are not sacrifices of animals. These are sacrifices of praise from the heart of those who are Christ followers. Those, as we seek to live a life of devotion to God, 
and we understand how choice and precious Jesus is, it is our very lives that are a sacrifice of praise to God now. And then I really like what he says in verse 6. And no one who comes to him, no one who seeks to live a life devoted to Jesus, nobody who believes in him will be disappointed. Let me read verse 7 and 8 again. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. We understand, right? People respond differently to Jesus. But because people respond differently to Jesus, that also means that they experience Jesus and God in very different ways. Those of us who believe, we have come to the place where we see Jesus as precious. We love Him. We adore Him. We worship Him. We seek to follow Him because He's precious to us. We experience the love and acceptance of God because of Jesus. And now... We stand in this amazing relationship with the God of the universe because of Jesus. He's precious to us. And we have this abundant life now. We have this eternal life to come. And so for for us, Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Of which we never want to waver. But for those who don't believe, for those who reject Him, because they don't come to Him, they never know what it is to experience the love and the acceptance of God. They, they don't know what it is to experience life in God. They can't know because they're standing from afar. And to them, Jesus then becomes a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And it's an ironic process that's described here, isn't it? I mean, here's the process. Jesus is described as a living stone. He's alive. He's the refuge. He's the rock. He's the one that can be depended on. From God's perspective, He's choice and He's precious. And God declares Jesus to be the cornerstone in the centerpiece of his revelation to the human race. That Jesus, the life-giving stone, becomes a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And when he is rejected, it leads to a person's demise, life apart from God, in this life and the next. It was true then, on the day that Peter penned this, and it's true today. Jeb mentioned that um, Eastern Europe has been my world for almost 20 years. The 20 countries of Eastern Europe is the place where um, I've been devoting my life and my efforts 
Mary and I and our family lived there for six years. Uh, one of our kids graduated from high school there and a couple of others well, once we got back. Um, I'm there involved in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who don't know him. There are some there who Jesus is the rock of their salvation, and there's some there who he's still a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. I do a lot of training and discipling of, of young ministry leaders in that part of the world who will be pastors and missionaries in the next wave of the gospel should Jesus wait a while to come back. Let me give you one example of this paradox of those who know Jesus as the rock of their salvation and those who know him as a rock of offense. Uh, earlier this month, July 2nd, is a Czech Republic national holiday called Jan Hus Day. Now, in English, that's John Hus. Jan Hus Day commemorates the day that Jan Hus was put to death for his faith. He was a Czech preacher. He was a Czech teacher. He was a Czech reformer. And in church history, Jan Hus will always be known as one who knew Jesus as the rock of his salvation, even in the face of death. Not unlike Jesus in Jesus' day, not unlike Paul and many of the other uh, disciples, who encountered a lot of opposition from the religious leaders of their day, well, so did Jan Hus in his day. And Jan Hus encountered a lot of uh, opposition by people who were offended by Jesus because they were people who were more interested in securing their power within the, the religious regime rather than releasing that power to this Jesus that is being preached as being preeminent. And so it ultimately is a power struggle. Again, very much like Jesus in his day. And in 1415, Jan Hus has his final trial, had a series of trials, but his final trial. And in this trial, he is asked one last time, will you recant from what you are teaching about Jesus? To which he said, the only things I have taught, the only things I have written, the only things I have preached are the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for that, I am prepared to die. And die he did. They burned him to death, tied to a stake on the outskirts of Constance, Germany. And July 6th is a national holiday in the Czech Republic commemorating Jan Hus. So, a couple of years ago, around this time, I'm talking to university students in Prague, Prague, Czech Republic. I love talking to university students. I love the challenge of challenging them to think And so here it is, it's kind of July, I'm thinking, okay, well, hey, 
you guys have this national holiday. It's not my national holiday. It's your national holiday. So let's talk about it. Hoping to use it as a springboard to talk about spiritual things, talk about God, talk about Jesus Christ, the one who Jan Hoosh taught and spoke about. It's your holiday. Let's talk. Some of the students uh, referred me to a website that was a Jan Hoosh Day website where a lot of university students interacted about this day. And there was one entry that particularly caught my attention, and it began this way. Most of us in the Czech Republic don't care about Jan Hoosh or this holiday. The most, imp- the most important thing to us about July 6th is that we don't have to go to work or school. I guess people who know Jan Hoosh. I mean, I guess there are people that know Jan Hoosh, but but for the majority of Czechs, we really don't care. Czechs don't care about God, and we don't care about religion. And then, I read a little further, and then this student made this claim. Of course, people who follow Jan Hoosh and his his teachings think differently. But these are not ordinary people. People like that are a tiny minority in the Czech Republic. I love what he said. It is absolutely true. We are not ordinary people. At least not the way the world defines ordinary. We've been born again. We're new creations. We're not who we used to be. Of course we're not ordinary people. I love that he said that. And opened up some more opportunity to talk about, okay, I agree with him. Let me tell you why I'm not an ordinary person. It's because of the one that Jan Hoosh died for. You know this. There, there have always been those who oppose the gospel. There's always been those who have opposed the messenger of the gospel. It's nothing new. It was true then. It's true now. And on a much less dramatic scale, much, much less dramatic scale, there has been a season in my life where Jesus was a rock of offense and a stumbling stone to me. And as I look back on that time, I realize that Jesus was a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to me, not because I understood who Jesus was. No, no, that wasn't the case. I had developed this this inaccurate picture of who I thought he was. And it was based on misconceptions and uninformed conclusions that I came to based on some things. And my, my misconceptions and my uninformed conclusions were based on things like various religious experiences that I had. It was based on my upbringing. It was based on stereotypes about God and Jesus and Christians that I heard mainly through the media. And my misconceptions was based also on the opinion of other people, namely my friends, who didn't believe in God either. And so, the reality of it was, I was stumbling over Jesus. But it wasn't even the real Jesus. It was some image that I had conjured up in my mind... 
And I was reacting to that image. And I'll tell you some of the little you know, steps along the way. It started as a kid. My parents went to church, so I went to church. Now today, we talk about the Holy Spirit. But back in that day, at least in the church I went to, we talked about the Holy Ghost. Now, i got to tell you, as a kid, that's kind of a scary thought, right? I mean, we saw ghost movies. You knew you didn't want to mess with ghosts. I remember Sunday nights, just like happened all the time. Sunday nights, we had a Sunday night service. After the service, our parents would kind of gather and talk outside the church building what seemed like hours. Like, kid, we want to go home, and they're talking. So we're trying to find things to entertain ourselves. So we would dare each other to go back into the church. Now, here was the picture. Um, it was a really big, it kind of was an old-fashioned big church. High ceilings, giant rafters. They had these black chains that came down with these light fixtures in them. Really scary stained glass windows. And, and after the service over, they would dim the lights. They wouldn't turn it completely off, but they would dim the lights. And so we would dare each other, like who would go back into the church? And then how far would you go in? And here was the reason it was scary to us. Because we knew that lurking somewhere in those shadows was that ghost. And so as a little kid, this, this is some of my first conclusions about developing my theology of God. God's scary. So I move on a little bit. Now I'm kind of maybe in high school. I go to like high school retreats. I start hearing people talk about, oh, you know, you just, you just got to give your life to God. And they would use phrases like, like, just put your life in God's hands. And give Him complete control of your life. God has a plan for you. Just surrender yourself to it. You know, I was pretty sure that if I surrendered my life to God, that there was a whole lot of things I was going to have to stop doing that I like doing, and there was a whole lot of other things I have to start doing I didn't want to do. And I was absolutely convinced that if I gave my life to God like these people were saying... I guarantee you I'd be a missionary in some place like Liberia. I'd be living in a mud hut eating beetles for breakfast. I'd probably get malaria and die some horrible death. No, thank you. Not interested. And so now to the fear that I had as part of my theology of God, now I added suspicion. Not sure I could really trust him. Then I go on. Now I'm in college. I start to encounter things that I define as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in Christians. Hypocrisy in the church. Some people that I knew personally, like I know you say, I know how you live, and doesn't match up. Or um, other people that I didn't know personally but were kind of more famous Christians who would end up in the you know, in the news, in the media because of sex or money scandals. You know what I'm talking about. And so now, to fear of God and to suspicion of God, now I'm adding cynicism. And that now is my theology of God. Then after college, God drops a guy in my life. And among other things, this guy challenges me 
to read the Bible and find out about Jesus on my own. And for the life of me, I don't understand why, but I started reading the New Testament. Wasn't even going to church at the time. But I start reading the New Testament, and I begin to discover Jesus for myself, and I begin to discover the excellencies of God. Look at verse 9 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I didn't know anything about the excellencies of God. Fear, suspicion, cynicism. That's what I knew about God. Men and women, most people don't know about the excellencies of God. They don't know how beautiful He is. They don't know that God is all wise. He's all powerful. He's holy. He's loving. He's gracious. He's worthy of praise. He has no equal. He is the giver of life. And 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 in that process, it began to dawn on me that my unbelief was such an insult. It was such an insult to God and to His choice and precious Son. Who am I? My unbelief to disregard the choice and precious Son of God. And I began to read, you know, you can come before God. You can confess your sin of unbelief. He is ready to forgive. He is ready to to allow what Christ did on the cross to be a substitution for you. That He went to the cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin. And that anyone who comes to Him in that way goes from darkness to light. Enters into this relationship where now I'm part of the family of God? Really? And I can receive abundant and eternal life. And then that great phrase, and no one who makes that decision and comes to Him will be disappointed. By the way, notice, Christian, in verse 9, the reason God done anything for us, the reason that He gives in verse 9, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's why He did it. His excellencies are to be proclaimed by those who know Him to those who don't. Otherwise, how are they going to know? And Christian, there is no higher privilege than to be a messenger of the gospel. So Jesus went from being a, a rock of offense to me to a rock of my salvation, and I exchanged the fear and the suspicion and the cynicism And I exchanged it for the truth about Jesus and the excellencies of God. And so I want to return to what we said in the beginning, the question that I asked. Really, the most relevant question is, who is Jesus to you? If He's the rock of your salvation, then enjoy Him and proclaim Him. In the the notes you have, I've given you some ideas, some suggestions this week on how to do that. And if, if you're here this morning, it's a season in your life where He's still a rock of offense to you. Understand this. Jesus doesn't want to be a stumbling stone to you. He doesn't want to be a rock of offense to you. He wants to be the rock of your salvation. So I would encourage you, do what I did. Find out for yourself. I've given you some things in the notes as well if you'd like to consider this week of things you might do.
Whether we experience Him as the rock of salvation or the rock of offense is up to us. He can be both. But there's one that's way more desirable. Amen. I pray. Father, I want to stand before you uh, praising you because I'm living proof that you can change a life. Everyone in this room who knows you is living proof. Father, I ask that you would help us to see you more clearly as you really are. Not as we think of you, not as we conjure you up to be in our mind. Even those that know you, Father, stretch our minds. Give us uh, insight as we uh, are in your words. We fellowship together. Give us insight more and more to your glory and that that would inspire us. Father, I pray for those that know you here that this week they would enjoy you. I pray that you would give them eyes to see opportunities all around where they can uh, proclaim your excellencies. And Father, if there are those here this morning that don't know you, Father, I pray you would draw them. I pray that uh, you would open up their scriptures and open up their hearts to see who you really are and that they would come and be part of that spiritual house that you're building. We're so grateful to be part of what you're doing. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.